Well, Happy New Year. I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 31. The subject I want to address this morning is of vital importance. It is a subject that is very, very important to me, as you will find. It is a subject that is um, somewhat autobiographical. It's a subject of anxiety. And my prayer this morning is that if it, that this will be of great service to you. It will be of great help to you. It will bring you comfort. You will add some tools to your toolbox as you battle anxiety. Because let's just be straight with one another. We all battle it. Most people don't want to admit that they battle anxiety. But I believe uh, a majority of people do. As you know... Our, our tradition at Christ Fellowship, I hate to use the word tradition, but our practice at Christ Fellowship is to preach sequentially through books of the Old and New Testament. We're going to depart from that this morning, and next week we will begin a study in the book of Jude. But um, if you find any benefit from the message this morning, if you are helped, if you are encouraged, if you are strengthened, would you do me a favor and thank my wife? Because the only reason I'm preaching this message is because of her. It was about three months ago. We were driving down the road. And as you know, 2018 has been a very, very difficult time for, for many people at Christ Fellowship. As we're driving down the road and Jereen says to me, just out of the blue, Honey, I think you need to preach a message about anxiety. Which made me feel somewhat anxious. And the more we got to talking about it, and the more I listened to my wife, I realized that she was right, that we needed to step aside from the verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture and move to the topic of anxiety uh, for the good and the upbuilding of the body of Christ. Preaching is, is a very interesting thing, is it not? I believe that every pastor, every preacher must be a man of of character, conviction, and competence. You say, what are you talking about? Well, first of all, a, a, a person who is an elder, a person who is a pastor, needs to be a man of character. This man needs to be above reproach. This man needs to uh, follow carefully the, the, the character qualifications set forth in First Timothy and Titus and First Peter. And I've never met a man, myself included, who's measured up perfectly. But we need to be constantly growing in these character qualities in order to, to shepherd well. But the pastor also needs to be a man of conviction. He needs to be dogmatic. And I realize the word dogmatic is not a popular word these days. And so let me just go on record and say I'm a dogmatic person. I believe what I believe what I believe. Uh, And I think that's how Christians should be. If you believe it, you ought to be willing to preach it. You ought to be willing to live it. 
your life should back it up. And so you ought to be a man of conviction, but you also need to be a man of competency. That is, you need to have the necessary skills to deliver the Word of God in an understandable way, in a passionate way, in a way that's going to reach people in the pews. And so if keeping this in mind that there is no one perfect, there is not a man who is a perfect man of character, competency, or conviction. But here's what happens. This is the razor's edge of preaching, is that when you have these three things lining up by God's grace, what subtly can happen in local churches, and I'm sure you have all experienced this, is is, is a pastor is, by God's grace, doing his best all to the glory of God. Something subtle and very dangerous slips in, and it discourages many people. Let me give an example. I want you to imagine that a pastor is preaching on, on spiritual formation or, or being a holy man or woman of God. And by way of example, he shares about how he's memorized the Bible 12 times. And he wakes up at 2.30 in the morning. He prays all the way until 8 o'clock. And then he takes an hour and he has breakfast and he leads his, 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 his family in devotions. And then he prays for another four hours. And, and the list goes on and on and on. And some of you are experiencing what, what I'm warning against right now is by the end of the sermon, you're so discouraged because your pastor has memorized the Bible 12 times and has memorized all these scriptures and, and is a, a man of prayer who has prayed five million more times than you prayed over the course of your whole life. And he did it in one morning, right? And you, you walk away from the church that morning and you're just like... I, I just need to figure out how I can take two minutes to read the Bible. And if I could only pray for three minutes every other day, I would be a a much more productive Christian. Your pastor comes, and I I should have done it. I I thought about it, but I decided not to. It's almost like he rips off his shirt and there's a big S on his t-shirt that says, Super Pastor! And you just feel like a loser. You know what I'm talking about? I, I want you to know that when... We address the topic of anxiety. You're going to hear a message from a pastor who does not have his act together. You're going to hear a message from a pastor who just last year, uh, we were talking uh, last night with my brother and sister-in-law. My sister-in-law said, what are your goals for the year? Well, I, I generally keep my goals pretty much to myself. But when someone says, what are your goals? I break out the Excel spreadsheet, right? And so I showed it to my sister-in-law. Physical goals, spiritual goals, mental goals, emotional goals, uh, family goals, sports goals, golf goals. That never once have I reached a golf goal. And, I mean, it's, it's rather overwhelming, right? But one of those goals, as I was reviewing those, one of my spiritual goals from last year was to conquer fear and anxiety. And I'm here to tell you that I'm not there yet. But by God's grace, I'm moving forward in the strength that he supplies. And so hear my heart this morning. You're going to hear a message from a, a fellow pilgrim, a fellow foot soldier, a fellow laborer, a fellow struggler, someone who is in the trenches with you. And some of you, frankly, are ahead of me. But some of you have, have much to learn and there is much growth that needs to take place. And my prayer is that this message will be the beginning of some exciting things that can take place in your life. So the title of the message, as you have seen already in the bulletin, is Loose the Noose, a biblical plan for battling anxiety. Would you take your Bibles 
and look with me at Psalm 31. And let's stand together and read our passage, beginning in verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. And take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. And you have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that... um, this message would serve uh, the flock of God well. I pray that those who are battling anxiety, fear, depression, despondency, discouragement, doubt, whatever it is that ails us, I pray that this message would, would, would lift someone up, that it would build someone up, that it would encourage them, that it would give them a few, few tools to put in their, their tool chest so that they might be more effective so that they might be encouraged so that they might be filled with faith so that the word of God would bolster them. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would, would do a, a very special work here in this place. God, I thank you for the, the lessons you've been teaching me over these last several months. And I pray that, uh, the principles from your word, things that you have been teaching me would be, um, conveyed in a way that would be helpful in a way that would would serve these dear people well. We look forward to this time together in your word and trust that your spirit would apply uh, the word of God directly to individual hearts and lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The new Park Street Church in the city of London had reached its capacity of people. Again. In order to facilitate the the massive crowds that were coming to this church, the Park Street Church decided to hold services at the chapel and divert the evening worship service to uh, a facility referred to as the Exeter Hall. And all this was so that the crowds, the, the mobs of hungry people could hear a young pastor in the 19th century by the name 
of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This preacher was a, a, a preacher who was green. He was a rookie. He was a youngster. He was only 21 years of age, but God had blessed this young man with a most extraordinary gift, one that would eventually reach millions upon millions of people around the globe. To this day, the surgeon, the surgeons, the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon continue to be reprinted day after day after day. The church met in this alternate location from June 8th until August the 24th, 1856, until they finally determined that this arrangement was just simply not going to work. And so to facilitate the massive crowds, the church decided to build a new facility, what would later become known as the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And while the building was under construction, the church decided to meet in Surrey Gardens Music Hall, and they actually met at Surrey Gardens for three years. Gathering number one was on October 19th, 1856. Pastor Spurgeon and his wife prayed together at home before he went to church because she was still recovering after giving birth to twins. And Nate and Lacey, as I was reviewing the sermon this morning, uh, you popped into my mind. And I, and I, and I wanted to mention you because it, it, it will bring home how personal this story is to me and how real it was to Charles Haddon Spurgeon and his wife Susie. So imagine Nate pastoring a church. Thousands of people are coming. And Lacey is still just, she's exhausted after giving birth to these twin boys. And so they pray together. Susie and Spurgeon, they pray together and then she sent him off to church. 12,000 people gathered at this church service. Someone yell out, how many people live in Linden? About 12,000. So imagine the whole city of Linden. They gather together in the Surrey Gardens. 10,000 more wait outside. And somewhere near the beginning of this service, some knucklehead yells, Fire! The building is falling! And as the panicked crowd made their way to the exit, seven people were trampled to death at church. 28 people were sent to the hospital with serious injuries. And the disaster at Surrey Gardens Music Hall would mark Spurgeon for the rest of his life. His wife Susie referred to it as, quote, the black shadow of sorrow which the Lord saw fit to cast over our young and happy lives. Susie Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon's wife, lamented, he, speaking of her husband, he carried the scars of that conflict to his dying day. And never afterwards had he had the physical vigor and strength which he possessed before passing through the fierce trial. I think you would agree with me that we live in a, a fierce world. Because the world that we are a part of is a result of the fall. This is a world that is, is marked by pain. It's a world that's marked by suffering. And while we may never have to endure this, this weight 
that C.H. Spurgeon endured in the Surrey Gardens disaster, each one of us, every single one of us, every young person, every man, every woman will face a series of fears and anxieties in our lives. Some of you in 2018 and also 2017 have experienced the loss of a loved one. Some of you have experienced or are experiencing this very moment physical setbacks or disability or physical pain. Perhaps you are battling an ongoing disease or a a series of diseases and wrestle with chronic pain or discomfort. As I was preparing this message, a friend of mine popped in my mind, uh, a friend that Doreen and I haven't seen in almost eight years, and it's a friend in eastern Oregon, and this dear woman has fibromyalgia, and she is in pain literally 24 hours a day. I have a friend who spent his whole life, his whole adult life, pastoring in Olympia, And he's a wonderful man, a man of God, and he recently retired. And before he retired, in his 70s, he started to have these physical symptoms in his his arms. And it led to, to more pain and disability. And he eventually was diagnosed with a disease that is not Lou Gehrig's disease, but he has symptoms that mimic the, the effects and the symptoms of Lou Gehrig's disease. Some of you have experienced mental or emotional challenges. You have experienced panic attacks. And I, I have learned that in the local church, most people don't like to admit their panic attacks. And I'm not, I promise I won't do this, but I, if I asked you to raise your hand if you ever had a panic attack... This, this church family would be shocked to see the number of people who have experienced a panic attack, myself included. You struggle with melancholy. You struggle with a, a crippling loneliness. You, you're battling depression and discouragement and despondency. Some of you have been sidelined by fear. You're fearful of the future. You're fearful of rejection. You're fearful to make that one phone call. You fear the unknown. Some of you, even as a Christian, fear the day that you will die. And your fear has placed you in a position where you are stuck. I was just visiting with my mom yesterday, and she shared about a a friend that I knew. Her her son was about the same age as me growing up, and, and she and her husband are facing a series of physical challenges. And she says, all we do is we go to the store and come home, and that's it. They find themselves stuck. Some of you have been afflicted with a combination of some of the above or all of the above. And so as I made preparations for this message, I quickly discovered that I had bit off more than I can chew. And some of you are thinking, it's time for a series. I'm not going to do a series, at least at this point. But for any of the the topics that I've just described, we could explore any of these subjects for hours and hours on end. And so this fallen world that we have lived in has left us vulnerable to all of these challenges and struggles. Each one of us, and we need to admit this, each one of us battle this monster within. And I'm talking about the multifaceted monster of fear, anxiety, depression, despondency, and discouragement. C.S. Lewis refers to the, quote, anxiety that gnaws like fire and loneliness that spreads out like a desert. And he goes on to make this sobering statement. 
He says, if I knew a way of escape, I would crawl through the sewers to escape this pain. I know I myself would agree with Lewis's assessment. And one of the things I've learned in the church is that many Christians, many of us included, have become experts at trying to convince everyone around us that we have our act together. Just for fun, I'm going to do this. Would you raise your hand if you think we've become experts at convincing people we have our acts together? Yeah. So I'm not alone in this. This is my proposal. If we can start with the following premise, I think we can move forward in great strength and power and authority. Let's start with the premise that, that we're all broken. And it's really funny, as I'm thinking about this morning, there are undoubtedly some here this morning going, oh boy, here we go. Here we go again. If you're one of those people, my encouragement would be to ratchet it down into first gear and start over because we're all broken. We're all fallen. We're all sinful. And we all struggle at varying degrees with anxiety. Some of you have small struggles with anxiety. Others of you, and I can see by looking into your eyes, you're like on the seat of your chair. You're ready to take. I mean, you're so excited. You want to hear a word from the Lord. And so we have to admit we're broken. We don't have it all together. I want you to wrestle with this question. How As the people of God, how can we loose the noose? What is the biblical plan for confronting anxiety? King David and the word of God knew what it was like to have his oxygen supply cut off. His life was filled, as you know, as you read through the Old Testament, especially through the Psalms. His life was filled with moments that were marked by fear and anxiety. And here's one of the many things that I really love about King David. Not to mention the fact he has a really cool name. He was willing to acknowledge all the garbage that he was facing in his life. Don't you appreciate appreciate that about David? There's something raw and refreshing about the depth of his honesty. He acknowledged his fears. He acknowledged his doubt. He acknowledged his, his bouts with discouragement and depression and despondency. He was very transparent about his battle with anxiety. And Psalm chapter 31 is one of the many, many places in Scripture where David acknowledges this hideous monster within. And so how shall we respond when the noose of life threatens to strangle us? When our oxygen supply is cut off by any one of the things that we've described, fear, depression, or anxiety, what is the biblical strategy for dealing with and confronting these monsters? There's three things I want you to see, and we'll make this very simple and understandable this morning. The first thing that we need to do is we need to recognize. We need to recognize that, that we are in a battle. We're in a battle. That's the first step in the process of loosing the noose. And I want to take a few moments and and explore the example of King David. And what stands out in Psalm 31, as I've already mentioned, is the brutal honesty and transparency of David. And so layered within this narrative, we find that David is in the midst of turmoil. And even reading it once through together, I hope you are able to to sense and detect that turmoil. 
And so right out of the gates, we see this. David finds his strength and his vitality and his protection in God and God alone. Look at verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Never let me be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Now, the Hebrew word for refuge means shelter, protection, or safety. And so in the midst of all this turmoil, in the midst of all this junk, in the midst of of people threatening his life, David says, God, I begin by acknowledging this. I am in a battle and I call upon you to be my refuge. You are my refuge. And there, there are a multitude of ways that the Word of God uses this term refuge. Let me just give you a few of them. And I think the best way for you to, to internalize this this morning is by not turning to the refuge, the, 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 the passage, but by jotting down the Scripture references. And then later in the day or later this week, you can go back and meditate upon these. So let me give you a few of them. The first is Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 31. And it says this, this God, his way is perfect. And I want you to think before I read the rest of the verse, if you struggle with fear or anxiety or any of the other things that we've mentioned this morning, just by starting and acknowledging that God is perfect, don't you feel better already? To know that in the midst of of your horrible situation, whatever it is, physical, mental, spiritual, or otherwise, to acknowledge that, that God is in the heavens, He does whatever He pleases, and this God is perfect. Psalm or Second Samuel twenty two thirty one continues The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 511, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. Psalm 161, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My rock in whom I take refuge, my, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You see, he is my refuge, he is my shelter, he is my protection, he is my safety. He is the one I turn to when my mind tricks me into thinking in ways that are not biblically appropriate. Ken, I so appreciated you sharing your heart this morning and, and sharing about how anxiety works on you. I'll tell you one of the ways that when I get sick or when I struggle with anxiety, my confidence goes from here down to here. Do you get that, Ken? Same thing? And you feel like sometimes you're so filled with anxiety, you don't even know if you can tie your own shoes. Now, there's some of you this morning thinking, oh, come on, give me a break. Brace yourself. Because if you're ever that low, you come to the point when you don't even know if you can tie your own shoes. And it's in those moments you cry out, God, you are my refuge, you are my shelter, you are my protection, you are my safety. Psalm chapter 1830, this God whose way is perfect, once again, he is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 57.1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. 
refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. You notice what's happening there? In his moment of turmoil, the psalmist says, I'm going to take refuge in you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to stay where it's safe until the storm passes by. Most of us lost power several days ago. And my suspicion is most of you didn't go out to take a walk when it was blustering with 40 mile an hour winds and raining and the neighborhood was dark. What did you do? You sat as a family and you got as warm as you could and you waited for the storm to pass. That's what David's doing here. He's waiting for the storm to pass. And in the meantime, God is his refuge. Psalm 31, 2, incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. But I want you to notice the reason for his need to take refuge in God to begin with in verse 1. And the texture of this passage helps us to see what's happening here. Just quickly, verse 7, he takes refuge in God because he is experiencing affliction. In verse 9, he takes refuge in God because his soul is distressed. His eye is wasted from grief. So we have spiritual things happening in his soul. We have physical things happening in his body. He notices specifically his eyes. His soul and his body in verse 9 is wasted from grief. Verse 10, his soul is filled with sorrow and sighing. Also in verse 10, he says this, my own words, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm worn out. His strength is failing. How serious is this turmoil which is inflicting his body? Verse 10 says this, and it's not the only time in the Psalms that he uses this verbiage. He says, my bones are wasting away. I'm curious, how many of you have been in a situation where you felt your bones were wasting away? It's because of that anxiety that was gnawing at you. It's because of the fear. It's because of the discouragement or the despondency. And so here in Psalm 31, David is in the midst of turmoil that is emotional, physical, and spiritual. And he's unwilling to hide it. He's unwilling to cover it up. Instead, he's honest about his situation. Now, each of us, everyone in this this sanctuary this morning, has a story to tell. And if we are honest with one another, the chapters of our lives are not always filled with joy. Some of you do Facebook. And I've done Facebook for uh, almost 10 years now. Sometimes Facebook cracks me up. I mean, sometimes Facebook is the goofiest thing because how people portray themselves. It's like the pastor that said he memorized the Bible 12 times and prays for 14 hours a day. You're just like, people, people, give me a break. Like your life is filled with pain, but Facebook looks the opposite. Some of these chapters in our lives are downright discouraging. Some of the chapters in our lives are filled with grief and pain and anxiety. I I struggle to know when and when not to talk about the past of Christ Fellowship, and I have not done it very often. But I think now is a perfect opportunity to give you a little bit of a window into my life and the life of my family is is some of you that were here back in, I don't even remember when it was. It was a long time ago, and I don't even like to think about it, but it was a difficult season in this church family. 
And I can remember I tried to hide it really well. And I remember I was, I was driving down, I was driving down the Hannigan one day and I was thinking about what was going on. And there was a house of a former church member, it's, uh, my friend Steve King. And so when I, when I, when I drive down that road, I would, I would always pray for the Kings. And so I found myself praying for Steve and Kelly, even though they'd since moved away. And just in praying for my friends, I just burst out into tears thinking about what was going on here. And so there I am driving in an unsafe condition with tears clouding my vision. And it wasn't too many days later, I'm driving down the road and I, Ken talked about the migraine. I don't think I've ever had a migraine headache like some of you experience. And actually this day, I don't think it was a migraine. I think it was worse because it felt like a bolt of lightning went through my brain. And I, to this day, don't know what it was, but it was really bad. These are the kinds of things, physical, emotional, spiritual trauma that we face in the household of faith. And so my question is, can you relate to what's happening here with King David? Can you relate to his, his helpless condition, what appears on the face of it, his hopeless condition? Have you ever felt like you've been trapped, like you were all out of options, like you're King David here, and he is physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted? He's at the end of his rope. Well, I want to encourage you this morning to follow the example of David by doing something very simple, by simply acknowledging, by simply recognizing you're in a battle. This morning, I would do something very practical, and we don't do this very often here at Christ Fellowship, but I want you to take a few minutes just on your own, just by yourself, to acknowledge your broken condition to God. I want you to to bow your heads, to close your eyes, and to acknowledge what's happening in your life, and to acknowledge to God, God, I admit the battle, and to cry out to him that he alone would be your refuge. Would you do that just for a moment? Uh, Father in heaven, so often we put on a big smiley face and want everyone to think that everything is is chipper, and it's not. And so we acknowledge, we recognize that we're in a battle. We acknowledge uh, whatever it is that is uh, has made an interest into our lives, fear, anxiety, discouragement, despondency, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, We present these needs to you, and I pray that this, as we study this passage, would be the first step, a first step to to moving towards wholeness, to moving towards healing, to receiving help that we need from your word by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. How shall we respond when the noose of life threatens to strangle us? Number one, recognize you're in a battle. But this is just the beginning. As you already know, there's something also I want you to see, and that is to remember something. You you recognize you're in a battle, but then secondly, I want you to remember, and I I trust this comes as a great encouragement to you. Remember, you are not alone. 
You are not alone. We've seen firsthand that David wrestles with the same kind of real-life junk that you and I face. Well, I want you to remember this, that the great saints battled with anxiety, fear, and depression. Did you hear that? The great saints, both in Scripture and in church history, battled with anxiety, fear, and depression. Let's move to the next slide, if we could. I want to take a look at three figures in church history. Some of you, this will be brand new to you. You've never heard this before. Others of you, it'll be somewhat of a review. And these are three individuals that I've studied over the last 25 years. And so, of course, it's a review for me. I never get bored of it. I never weary of learning about these godly men and learning about some of their uh, horrible situations they went through. The first is Martin Luther. He was an anxious saint. For most of his adult life, Luther battled with fear and anxiety. Now think about this. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark unfailing. He's the one that wrote those words. I mean, it was Luther who single-handedly took on the Roman Catholic Church. He did that. It was Luther who translated the, the German New Testament or rather the Greek New Testament, into German, the language of the common man, so that people could read it for the first time as he was holed up in the Wartburg Castle. It was Luther, this man who we see as, as I refer to him, as the bold reformer. But the bold reformer also battled fear and anxiety. He referred to these bouts of spiritual depression with a German word. It's the word anfektungen. And the German term is difficult to translate into simple English, but it has the connotation of being under assault, being attacked from within. And so after he stood his ground at the Diet of Worms, Luther was whisked away secretly into the night, into the forest by his friend Frederick the Wise. It looked like a kidnapping. And he spent the next 10 months at the Wartburg Castle, and I have stood with my own two feet at Vortberg Castle where he would eventually translate the Greek text into the German. But this is a man who battled on Fechtungsching during these dark days. This was a man who was assaulted from within. There's another man who is lesser known but is someone that is worthy of our consideration. His name is William Cooper. We actually sing some of William Cooper's hymns. He was a a poet and a hymn writer. He was actually friends with the British politician William Wilberforce. And it was Cooper who battled fear and anxiety his whole adult life. Listen to what he says. He says, day and night, I was upon the rack, lying down in horror and rising up in despair. John Piper reveals William Cooper's life seems to be one long accumulation of pain. He says such pain often extended beyond the miracle of regeneration and inflicts faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, there is our friend C.H. Spurgeon. We've already learned and seen how Spurgeon began his ministry at the tender age of 21 with the Surrey Gardens disaster. 
But he continued to trudge through the slew of despond, to use John Bunyan's language, for the remainder of his ministry. And he died in his mid-50s. Here's what he said. He said, the great enemy makes a dead set at anxious souls. What's he referring to? He says, Satan, Diabolos, the deceiver, the author of lies, is he loves to discourage the saints. He went on to say that spiritual sorrows are the worst of mental miseries. If you battle anxiety, if you have an intense battle with anxiety, those words ring true for you. That spiritual sorrows are the worst of mental miseries. But I want to encourage you with this is we are not only alone when we think about the, the, the long line of men and women in church history. These were anxious men and women. But we also need to remember that the saints at Christ Fellowship wrestle with anxiety and fear or depression. Remember this principle. And it's a simple principle, but I, I, I hope you find it helpful. Whenever you battle any kind of fear, realize this. Someone else has a similar or identical fear. I do this all the time. If I fear something and I feel, all, oh, I'm the only one. Uh, all you have to do, if you do this, just for fun, I, I'm battling this fear and I think, oh, I'm all alone and no one else. All you have to do is go like this. And know that with one or two or three people in your row, they're experiencing the same thing. That should encourage you. Not because you're glad that they experienced that. And I don't know which one of these boys in the front row experiences fear, but I know one of them does. Maybe two of them, maybe all of them. And so know that you're not alone. Whenever you battle with anxiety, look down the the row of your pew, that someone else is likely experiencing something similar. Whenever you battle with depression, and by the way, have you learned that Christians don't like to call it depression? It's discouragement. It's discouragement. Depression is so much worse, we think. But when you battle with depression, know this, someone else in your pew is likely battling a similar kind of depression. It's hard to believe that over seven years ago, (laughs) Ken... We sat in your backyard, and I know you remember it, and many of you, and uh, Kayleen, and and Chris, and Carmel, and Keith will remember this day where we sat in Ken and Tammy's backyard when they lived in Sumas, and we shared during the candidating process about our first 25 years of ministry together, a little less than 25 We shared some of the victories that we've experienced. We shared some of the the trials and the defeats and the heartaches. And I remember vividly sharing and revealing my propensity to discouragement. And I, I remember after I shared about my propensity to discouragement, I remember feeling embarrassed that I I might be the next senior pastor at Christ Fellowship, and I was just I was laying my heart, I was putting it on the table that here's, here's something I battle with. But you know what, what I've discovered? I'm not alone. I'm not alone. That a bunch of you experience the same exact thing. And so remember together that we are not alone. First Peter chapter 5 says, after you have suffered a little while, that would be something to memorize, by the way. After you have suffered... 
a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. But in the meantime, remember, you are not alone. First of all, you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. These are the heroes of church history. But you are also surrounded by your fellow foot soldiers at Christ Fellowship. And we are committed, are we not, to bearing our burdens together as Galatians chapter 6 instructs. And so know that when you find yourself trapped in the swamp of anxiety or fear or depression, remember this, you are not alone. Finally, there's a third observation I want to make. When the noose of life threatens to strangle us, we need to refocus. We need to refocus. We need to place our trust in God. And here I want to have you look at three very important observations from this passage. And the first is this. I want you to see David's disciplined focus. In verses 1 to 13, we have seen how he transparently pours out his heart as he describes the anxiety which is cutting off his flow of oxygen. But notice his disciplined focus. First of all, in verse 6, notice in the context of all this turmoil, all of these bad things that are happening. Verse 6, he says, but. By the way, I love the word but. But I trust in the Lord. Move forward to verse 14. In the midst of all this turmoil, David says, But I trust in you, O Lord. Now, the Hebrew word that is translated trust means this it means to be confident in, it means to rely on, it means to believe in. And one of the dominant themes that we find running through the Word of God is. That God's people are called to, to trust Yahweh. So, for instance, in 2 Kings 18.5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. Psalm 13.5, the psalmist says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. You see what happens when we place our trust in the living God? It leads to joy. And there's something very interesting here. When we don't trust God, our joy begins to decrease. But here we see David trusting in God. He rejoices in this salvation. Psalm 52, 8. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust, David says, in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. My daughter, Abby's here this morning, and this has become one of her favorite verses and my favorite verse, Psalm chapter 56, verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. What can mortal man do to me? I need to say at this point that some of you don't trust God yet, Because you have never believed in God. You say, what are you talking about? I believe he exists. Did you know it's possible to believe in God, but not trust in him? You can believe he exists, but you fail to trust in him. There's an example in Genesis 15, verse 6, where Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, 
We know that Abraham believed in the existence of God, but that's not what the word means. It means more than merely believing in the existence of God. It means he placed his trust. He banked all his hope and future exclusively in the living God. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. This is more than merely believing he exists. It's I, I, I bank all my chips on Jesus. I cash everything in on Jesus. I believe in him for salvation. And so if you have never cashed in your chips, if you have never turned from your sin and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Now move with me from David's disciplined focus to David's determined focus. And I should say that nothing strengthens our determined focus more than learning about the character of God. Let me illustrate. David's determined focus trusts in God who created all things. His determined focus trusts in God who sustains all things. So says Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. His determined focus to trust in God is the same God who parted the Red Sea. His determined focus to trust in God is the same God who raised Jesus from the grave. This is David's determined focus. But finally, look at David's devoted focus. And this is where I want to camp as we close at verses 14 and 15. His devoted focus sums up the essence of what I would like to refer to as the refocused life. Look at it. But I trust in you, O Lord. Remember the context here. Turmoil, suffering, persecution, emotional, mental, spiritual, physical trauma. I trust in you, O Lord. I would say that's a definition of the refocused life. I trust in you. I say you are my God. And it was several months ago, I I know I've read this many times, but it was one particular day I read, my eyes caught Psalm 3115. And these are words that are tremendously encouraging to me. Six words, my times are in your hand. My times are in your hand. That is, the details of his day are in God's hands. That is, your future. If I, asked, if I asked us all to close our eyes and say, raise your hand if you're concerned about your future, my suspicion is most of us would raise our hands. But your future is in God's hands. Young people, your career path, your future marriage partner is in God's hands. The time of your death is in God's hands. Commenting on Psalm 31 verse 15, Spurgeon himself says, The sovereign arbiter of destiny holds in his own power all the issues of our life. We do not stray on the ocean of fate. By the way, this is why I hate the phrase good luck. There is no such thing as luck in God's economy. There is no such thing as luck in God's redemptive timetable. Everything is ordained by God. And so we do not stray on the ocean of fate, but are steered by infinite wisdom toward our desired haven. And notice how Spurgeon concludes, Providence is a soft pillow For anxious heads. 
Does that just grab you? Providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads. After Spurgeon died in his mid-50s in 1892, can you imagine losing your spouse in, in the prime of his life, in the prime of his ministry years? His wife Susie was grief-stricken. She lost the love of her life. But as she commented on Psalm thirty-three, fifteen, that says, My times are in your hand, Susie saw how this scripture helped to pour a foundation of peace for her life. So she asked, quote, Why then need I trouble or tremble? Close quote. That hit me. That hit me. She loses the love of her life. The greatest preacher of all time outside of biblical preachers. The greatest human preacher of all time dies. And she says, why then need I trouble or tremble? And then Susie Spurgeon's biographer writes, Believing that Almighty God ordered and kept her life and that his word was trustworthy, soothed her troubled heart. She appealed to her readers to apply the doctrine of God's ordering of their lives, his power, and his care to your present circumstances, however dark or difficult they may be. And so how do we loose the noose? What is the biblical game plan for battling anxiety, fear, despondency, and depression? I want to add a little footnote as we have looked at the the spiritual, theological, the biblical angle for dealing with anxiety. I would be remiss if I did not say there are other things as well. Exercise, diet, how we take care of, of the, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Those things all play in. But what this text reveals is that we are called to recognize we are in a battle. We are called to remember that we are not alone. And God calls us to refocus and to trust in him. And so may the God, the promise of the gospel embolden you and strengthen you and encourage you. Never forget that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only delivers you from the penalty of sin. We know that. But it also delivers you from sin's power. And so we close with these words from 1 Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God who gives us victory. Not who will give us a victory. Who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is for those who are in the heat of the battle. My suspicion is that is all of us. At one degree or another, I, I pray, God, that you would help us to remember these vital principles from your word. And at the end of the day, we, we turn to the gospel. We realize that it is only as we place our trust in our refuge, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will find help and relief for our troubled souls. And so we acknowledge, we acknowledge these things that are a daily struggle. We recognize and remember that we are not alone and we choose to refocus, we choose to cast our trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ who died and gave himself for us. In Jesus' name, amen.